Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 233. Today's big Bible questions are, how can we ensure that God is on our side, and how can we invite Him to oppose us? So happy Lord's Day, dear friends. The days are rushing by. 2020 is still behaving awfully, and God is yet on His throne and directing the affairs of the world. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'd love to invite you to join us for our church's outdoor worship time streamed live on Facebook this Sunday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, you can find it at Facebook, facebook.com slash VBC Salinas. That's VBC Salinas. And uh, we'd love to have you join us there today. We're taking a bit of a radical diversion away from our normal format, but probably just for today. I see an interesting theme that sort of connects all of our Old Testament passages, and I think we should explore that theme together with a little bit of commentary tying together each passage and ending in a place of gospel triumph in Romans chapter 6. So beginning in 1 Samuel 7 and 8, we will read about how God led the Israelites into a tremendous victory over the Philistines and how Israel quickly forgot that wonderful rescue. In Jeremiah 44, we will see the Judeans willfully reject God's word and God himself turning to other gods, and we will see the defeat and punishment that comes from such behavior, and it's pretty dark. In Psalm 20 and 21, we will see great victory promised for those who trust in God's salvation rather than human power and human means. And finally, in Romans, we will see the victory of God won through Christ and how that sets us free from the repeated cycle of sin, judgment, punishment, tears, and deliverance that we see over and over and over again in the Old Testament. So let's begin with 1 Samuel 7 and 8. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. The people of Kiriath-Jerim came for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and took it to Abinadab's house on the hill. They consecrated his son Eleazar to take care of it. Time went by until twenty years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the ashtoreths that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. Then He will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the ashtoreths and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up towards Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And the Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below beth Car. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Sharon. He named it Ebenezer, explaining, The Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. 
The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and would judge Israel at all these locations. Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there and he built an altar to the Lord there. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1 When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel and his second son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord said to them, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. Samuel told all of the Lord's words to the people who were asking for a king. He said, These are the rights of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them to use in his chariots, on his horses, or running in front of his chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties, to plow his ground and reap his harvest, or to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He can take your best fields, vineyards, and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain in your vineyards and give them to his officials and servants. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best cattle and your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves can become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. Then Samuel told the men of Israel, Each of you go back to your city. So hey, if we'd only just read chapter 7 today, well, that would probably leave a much better taste in our mouth, wouldn't it? In chapter 7, we see this cycle of the judges repeated again. The same cycle that's repeated over and over in the Old Testament and honestly is often repeated in our lives too. The Israelites have turned away from God and they're trusting things like the Ark of the Covenant to rescue them. They are serving other gods and still God. They're putting up Asherah poles and worshiping the Baals and God at the same time. Happily, however, they come to the prophet, judge, priest Samuel and repent of this and ask him to intercede on their behalf. As they are repenting, a mighty Philistine army closing closes in, promising swift and certain destruction. Now, we've had ha- situations happen like this before, haven't we? At least I have. We might be on the surface and, and, and doing the right thing, God-pleasing thing. 
And all of a sudden, in the midst of that, instead of rainbows and unicorns and pots of gold, disaster strikes. And yet, here in this situation, and often in our lives too, God rescues completely the Israelites, teaching them that the key to victory lies in their faith in God, and they're turning to Him wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, like us, sometimes they don't fully learn their lesson and turn right back to trusting in human power, demanding that Samuel turn their theocracy into a monarchy like all the other cool nations around them. Samuel protests, but the people insist, and God lets it happen. Alarmingly, there are times when God gives us over to the desires of our heart when we repeatedly ignore his commands in his presence. We see this clearly and terrifyingly illustrated in Jeremiah chapter 44. So let's read it now. Jeremiah 44 verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt at Migdal, Tapens, Memphis, and the land of Pathros. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. You have seen all the disaster I brought against Jerusalem and all of Judah's cities. Look, they are a ruin today without an inhabitant in them because of the evil they committed to anger me by going and burning incense to serve other gods that they, you, and your ancestors did not know. So I sent you all my servants, the prophets, time and again, saying, Don't commit this detestable action that I hate. But they did not listen or pay attention. They did not turn from their evil or stop burning incense to other gods. So my fierce wrath poured out and burned in Judah's cities and Jerusalem's streets so that they became the desolate ruin they are today. So now this is what the Lord, the God of armies, the God of Israel says. Why are you doing such terrible harm to yourselves? You are cutting off man and woman, infant and nursing baby from Judah, leaving yourselves without a remnant. You are angering me by the work of your hands. You are burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have gone to stay for a while. As a result, you will be cut off and become an example for cursing and insult among all the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the evils of your ancestors, the evils of Judah's kings, the evils of their wives, your own evils, and the evils of your wives that were committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. They have not become humble to this day, and they have not feared or followed my instruction or my statutes that I set before you and your ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I am about to set my face against you to bring disaster, to cut off all of Judah, and I will take away the remnant of Judah, those who have set their face to go to the land of Egypt, stay there. All of them will meet their end in the land of Egypt. They will fall by the sword. They will meet their end by famine. From the least to the greatest, they will die by the sword and by famine. Then they will become an example for cursing, scorn, execration, and disgrace. I will punish those living in the land of Egypt just as I punished Jerusalem by sword, famine, and plague. Then the remnant of Judah, those going to live for a while there in the land of Egypt, will have no fugitive or survivor to return to the land of Judah where they are longing to return to stay, for they will not return except for a few fugitives. However, all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, all the women standing by, a great assembly, and all the people who were living in the land of Egypt at Pathros answered Jeremiah, As for the word you spoke to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Instead, we will do everything we promised. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and offer drink offerings to her, just as we, our ancestors, our kings, and our officials did in Judah's cities and in Jerusalem's streets. Then we had enough food. We were well off. We saw no disaster. But from the time we ceased to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and to offer her drink offerings, 
we have lacked everything, and through sword and famine we have met our end. And the women said, When we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it apart from our husband's knowledge that we made sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out drink offerings to her? But Jeremiah responded to all the people, the men, women, and all the people who were answering him. As for the incense you burned in Judah's cities and in Jerusalem streets, you, your ancestors, your kings, your officials, and the officials of the land, the people of the land, did the Lord not remember them? He brought this to mind. The Lord can no longer bear your evil deeds and the detestable acts you have committed. So your land has become a waste, a desolation, and an example for cursing without inhabitant as you see today. Because you burned incense and sinned against the Lord and didn't obey the Lord and didn't follow his instruction, his statutes, and his testimonies, this disaster has come to you as you see today. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, including all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. As for you and your wives, your women, you women have spoken with your mouths, and you men fulfilled it by your deeds, saying, We will keep our vows that we made to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings for her. Go ahead, confirm your vows, keep your vows. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you Judeans who live in the land of Egypt. I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name will never again be invoked by anyone of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, As the Lord God lives, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good, and everyone from Judah who is in the land of Egypt will meet his end by sword or famine until they are finished off. Those who escape the sword will return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, only few in number, and the whole remnant of Judah, the ones going to the land of Egypt to stay there for a while, will know whose word stands, mine or theirs. This will be assigned to you. This is the Lord's declaration, that I will punish you in this place so that you may know my words of disaster concerning you will certainly come to pass. This is what the Lord says. I am about to hand over Pharaoh Hophra, Egypt's king, to his enemies, to those who intend to take his life, just as I handed over Judah's king Zedekiah to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar, who was his enemy, the one who intended to take his life. Well, ugh, that's not an easy chapter to read. Here's the declaration of the Lord. As the Lord God lives, I am watching over them for disaster and not good, says Jeremiah 44. Says God in Jeremiah 44, verse 26 and 27. Now, many religious people, including many Christians, assume the Lord will always be with them and bring them victory over every adversary. But that is simply not at all true. Victory comes when we wholeheartedly trust in the Lord and obey His commands. Conversely, disaster and opposition comes when we utterly reject the word of the Lord and trust in other things to save us, like Egypt or the Ark of the Covenant or other gods or anything else. Psalm 20, however, is going to show us an amazing key to us being on God's side. Let's read it. Psalm chapter 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer for him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, 
but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Psalm 21, verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they despise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. What a powerful challenge and truth we find here in Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And it really could be that this passage in Psalms was in King Hezekiah's mind when he gives this amazing speech to the Israelites much later on in their history. Hezekiah was one of the few righteous kings, and he was faced with a terrible enemy uh, coming at him at the with Sennacherib um, leading them. And... It was an overwhelming army that was absolutely just going to basically steamroll uh, God's people. And Hezekiah stood up in front of them after having sought the Lord deeply. And in Second uh, Chronicles 32, 7 and 8, he says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. You know what? An arm of flesh can accomplish a lot, seemingly, in this world. Money can accomplish a lot. Power can accomplish a lot. Fame can accomplish accomplish a lot. It can scare people. It can rattle their cages. It can seemingly have a great impact. But Psalm 20 is absolutely right. And so is Hezekiah. The arm of flesh ultimately is nothing compared to the presence of the Lord our God. And just like Sennacherib's army fell, those who don't trust the Lord will also fail. They will fall and collapse, but we who do trust in the Lord wholeheartedly, says Psalms, will arise and stand upright. Our takeaway here is number one, to avoid putting confidence and trust in things that aren't God, and number two, to trust God for rescue and deliverance. Now, some of you might be saying, well, duh, this is like elementary, but (laughs) let me just be honest with you. I find that, at least in my life, I need to remind myself of that truth multiple times a day. It's really tempting. It's just as tempting today to trust in the arm of flesh, money, power, technology, medicine, intelligence, human giftedness, or whatever to save us, rather than first and foremost trusting in God's salvation to save us. Now, I'm not against medicine. I'm not against money. 
Uh, power is very corrupting, but uh, I suppose it can be used well. I'm not against technology or intelligence or giftedness, but we can't first and foremost trust those things or they will fail us. We will collapse and fall when we first and foremost trust those things. We need to first and foremost trust in God's mighty hand and his mighty power and not any sort of human fleshly sort of thing. Well, finally, let's read and close with the good news from Romans chapter 6. We're going to see two amazing contrasts in here. The contrast between being slaves and free and the contrast between being alive and dead. So let's read the passage. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Should we continue to in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it as sin uh, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law, under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But thank God that, although you used to be slaves of sin, You obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching to which you were handed over, and having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, God's salvation does not involve utter freedom from slavery, interestingly. Instead, we move from being slaves to sin to becoming slaves to God. Infinitely better for us. Also, being saved from death doesn't involve never experiencing death. The only way to have eternal life in Jesus and in heaven is to die with him. So there it is how to walk in victory and be on the Lord's side. We must die to sin and die with Christ, thus guaranteeing that we will be raised to life with him. And to walk in freedom, we must be enslaved to the great God of love and liberty, finding that being a slave to God 
is infinitely better than being a freedman apart from God. We'll ponder these truths on this wonderful Lord's Day, my dear brothers and sisters, and may we know the victory of Christ in our lives, and may we be the victors through that ultimate victory of Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed.